estimate. Okay. Um, so if you remember last week, we were talking about, um, we were focusing on Yitzchak and Yishmael, and we were talking about the sort of two, the set of brothers, and we said that the Milamancha in Yitzchak's life is very important because the name that Yitzchak is given is really indicative, not just of who he is and not just of his destiny, but for Yitzchak in particular, it represents right, this sort of idea of the disbelief and the ability for the unnatural to occur. And his birth really symbolized, or you could say sort of man, was a manifestation of this idea that God can do anything, that nature is not a hindrance, that God is in control of nature. And so in this case, for example, miraculous births can occur. And one of the things that's interesting and what I want to talk about today, we've been talking a lot about genealogy and we've been talking about the idea, if you remember last week, of the split between Cain the lines of Cain and Hevel, or really what it comes down to, Cain and Shate, right? And we said that the, there's sort of linkage between the etymology of the name, right, the meaning given to the child or the experience of the mother that is imprinted on the child, Kaniti Ish Et Hashem, natural birth, versus the shatli Elohim zera'acher tachat achiv kiharagohayim, that there's something more divine about it. And we created this, or we said, that what we're noticing in the texts or in the genealogies is this distinction between natural birth and divine birth. And there's nothing wrong with natural birth, but divine birth usually, at least in Rashid, signifies someone that will be part of the chosen line and eventually Birkat Abraham. And so we looked, for example, in the genealogies of Cain versus Shait, and we saw that Cain had Lemech, the city builder, and Cain had, excuse me, Chanuch, the city builder, and then Lemech, the psychopath, for lack of a better term. And then the, the genealogy of Shet, for example, had Eta Elohim, Chanuch, and Enosh, and Azuchali, Pro, B'Shem, Hashem. And so the what's imprinted from the mother's experience of birth onto the child, down the line, the Tanakh seems to be saying, influences the entire genealogy that comes from it. And so genealogy is what we're really going to be focusing on. Now, when it comes to Yitzchak and Yishmael, whether we noticed it or not, the Tanakh already created this sense of binaries, right? They created this notion of opposition between Yitzchak and Yishmael, whether or not we were paying attention to it, right? So give me things that you remember Right, even just from the text or what we talked about last week in terms of Yitzchak versus Yishmael, how does the Tanakh create a sense of opposition? And again, we know so little about them as personalities. We know so little of the details of what happened in their life. Those details recorded create the sense of this binary. So where do we have binaries in their lives? Okay, so we have, perfect, right? We have the natural versus divine birth, right? There's no question that Yishmael's birth was natural. He takes a shikha and instantaneously he, the child was born versus the birth of Yitzchak, which was everything about it was divine from beginning to end, right? If you think about it, by the way, the natural versus divine also temporally is, in, is important. Because Yishmael is born, right? Remember we said Abraham himself has a new birth, has a rebirth when his name is changed in the, when Hashem gives him the new name. And so on some level, right, if we call it before versus after Abraham's rebirth, that's also significant. Why? And Sarah. And Sarah, correct. We spoke last week about the significance of the, of the wife. Why? And we're going to get back to when we get to Rivka. Why? Right, they were meaning. Their DNA is 
Okay, excellent. And it also is very symbolic of the fact that Yishmael is not good, right? Because he becomes Avamon Goyim, right? But he becomes Abraham with a specific purpose. So if Yishmael is born before that, it's almost as if, okay, and I'm saying this for a reason, even though we know literally and biologically this is not the case, it's almost as if genealogically they belong to two different fathers. Now, again, in reality, we know they don't. But the perception that's created, there's a before, there's an Avram and an Avraham, okay? Um, what about the mothers? Oh, okay. Okay, so we're not even going to get into the Midrashim about princess, but let's just remember we said there's exogamy and endogamy, right? There's marrying out and marrying in, and those are always going to be seen as oppositions. Hagar is the what? She's the quintessential outsider. She's a Mitzrit. She comes from the outside and she was brought in, but then eventually, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, she returns to the outside. Okay? She is an outsider. And tell me why, why Sarah is as inside as you can be. She's his half-sister. Okay? And again, when we get to Arayo, we'll discuss why that eventually. But for now, right, it's almost as if to say you are as far out as one can be, you are as close in as one can be. And so even before we know anything about the boys themselves, even before we know anything about their personalities, right, there's something to be said about this opposition created in the pre-birth story. And pre-birth stories are very important in Tanakh. Okay? And then, of course, it goes without saying, right, the word, the, his name was Yitzchak. And then there was this whole focus on Kol Abraham. But then why ultimately is Ishmael kicked out of the house? right? He, and, and again, we don't know. We said there's a spectrum, right? There's, a, there's sort of a, a whole line. There's a, um, you want to call it sort of various meanings, whole variant meanings for the word sachak. But if she kicks him out of the house and says, lo yirash ben hamazot in ben then something that he's doing, we have to assume, is towards the end of the mocking spectrum. It's not disbelief, it's not happiness, like we saw before with the use of the word, but there's a variation of the word in terms of mocking and undermining the Yitzchak. So you have the Yitzchak, which is his name, versus the Mitzachet of Yishmael, which leads Sarah, the mother, to say, he cannot inherit. He cannot coexist with this child because everything this child has come to show to the world, this other personality is trying to undermine. Okay? Now, I'm going to ask you a question and you tell me. Why is it so important to the Tanakh to create these oppositions? They're brothers. And we know Yitzchak is chosen and Yishmael ultimately is, re is rejected. And we're going to see that in each of, the, each of the parents that eventually, each of the sons that eventually happens. It started with Cain and Hevel. But why here? Is it so important for the Tanakh to create this sense of distance between them? Can I erase this? Is that okay? It justifies the rejection or justifies the choice? Okay, so excellent. It's, I will say it justifies the rejection. Just, I think all of that is correct. There's something else. Justification, certainly. Okay? There's another word I want to introduce into the discussion. Huh? Our separateness. Okay, separateness, both of you are correct. There's a word I want to throw in here. Remember when we were younger in school, okay, we have these Venn diagrams. Okay. We keep talking about how Tanaka's speaking about distinction, 
right? Or distinctness, chosenness. Lech lecha, me'artzecha, unimoladzecha, leave and be different. Be further away, okay? What we're always wrestling with is distinction, or what I'm gonna say distance, versus closeness, okay? Now, how, what types of closeness exist? Spatial relations? Right, I have the same Okay, genealogical. <laughs> Genealogical? Huh? Familial. Okay, so familial, genealogical, I'll keep it all meaning belonging to. The spiritual. Okay, good. I'm going to call it geographical. Divine. Huh? Spiritual. Divine. Okay, spiritual, divine, I'm going to, I don't know if this is exactly what you were speaking, but I, ideological, right? I can live very, very far away. Jews all around the world are connected, in theory, by an ideology, even though we live, okay? Ideological. Now, Tanakh is always trying to focus on the distance between us and them. Okay? But what happens is sometimes we're brothers. Okay? Or sometimes we live in the same land. Okay? And so essentially what Tanakh tries to do, and we're going to see this, right? The best example is going to be when Avram turns to his Eved and says, Don't let my son marry any of these women. Make sure he goes out of marriage. Now, what's the difference between the women that worship the Canaanite god or between the daughter of Bituel that's going to be worshiping the moon god Sin back in Haran? There's no difference, right? But there is, because essentially what we're trying to do is minimize the overlap and in that way sort of compensate, right? To sort of create this sense or perception of distance, even though in reality it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily exist. And so when you have two boys coming from the same father, okay, so then, but one is born before the promise and one is born after, and one's mother is an outsider and one's mother is an insider, and, one, and so in theory what we're doing is creating a sense of distance, even though they're brothers. Now, where is this going to be the trickiest to create distance, if you think about it? Right, when they're actually twins, when they shared a uterus, that's going to make it even more tricky. So we're going to see the closer they are, the more distance we have to create. And so we have this sort of reverse closeness categories. And so we see Hashem rejects, if you go back to Breshit Parakid Zion for a second. Okay, Genesis 17. <clears throat> Hashem says in Pasuk Yudchet, and by the way, this is not the first person Hashem says this about. Who else does God reject as a potential heir? Not Lot, because he rejected Abraham. Huh? Esau later. The Evid, right? Ben Mesek Beitiu, Da Mesek Eliezer. Avram turns to Hashem and he says, It seems that the only guy that's going to inherit is going to be. And Hashem says to him in Paratetvav, Ah, ah. Eliezer is not actually going to be the inheritor of this bracha, of this covenant. You're going to have a son. But then he rejects Yishmael. In Parakid Zayim, Pasuk Yilchad, Vayomer Raham El Elohim, Lu Yishmael Yichiel Lefanecha. It's not going to be him. Vayomer Elohim El Valsara Yishtecha Yoledet Lecha Ben, Vekarat Et Shmo Yitzchak, It's the Hakimoti Et Briti Ito, Librit Olam Nezaro Achara. Okay, and so here again we have that sort of the, the finalization of that distinction between the chosen and the one that is rejected, not wholesale, but rejected from the promise. Okay, and again, I said if we were spending an entire semester on Bereshit, we would focus on how sympathetic Tanakh is to those that are rejected, 
and how Tanakh is very acutely aware of the fact that those that are rejected are rejected from the promise. They're not rejected as human beings, and that's very, very important. We become much more sort of xenophobic <coughs> over the centuries, and Midrashim manifests this sense of fear of the outsider in a way that the Tanakh, when they're individuals, Hashem takes very good care of Yishmael and is very, very cognizant of the fact that, that Hagar sort of had a, uh, had a rough time. Okay, but Hashem rejects him as an inheritor. What other distances are created here? Space, it seems more Right. Get him out of the house. And then where do we see what happens to Yishmael ultimately? Where does he end up going? Back, well, later on, but where does his mother raise him? In Mitzrayim, and he marries foreign women. And so geographically, he is out. Genealogically, and again, he's not out, but go to the beginning of Parakhafet. The Tanakh sort of continues, even though it's not trying to pull the wool over our eyes. Tanakh just told us the stories of his birth. We know he's Avram's son. But look at the language when Hashem commands Avraham to bring Yitzchak to the Akedah. Parakhafet, 22, he says, What? Correct. Vayachar, right? Hashem says, Pasuk Bet, Vayomer kachna et Yitzchak, et bincha, et yichidcha asher ahav. He's not his only son, right? Factually, literally, he's not the only son. But mythologically speaking, he's now the only son. But he's the only son that was born to him as Avraham. So it's very possible that that's right, that that's an extension of what we're talking about. Correct, 100%. Okay. Um, and so again, it's false on the narrative level, and the Tanakh knows we know that, but it doesn't matter. It's presenting the sort of mythical structure. Okay, and so this <laughs> distinction is very, very important. And it, yeah? What do you mean, what do you mean it's true mythologically? There's two things going on. The Tanakh is telling us what happened, but then the Tanakh is also creating a way for us to perceive things and the implications and the future of those things. We know Yitzhak is not the only son. But it's referring to him as Yechidcha because from here on in, the promise, the Brit Avraham, is only going through Yitzchak. Right? So, meaning literally, it's not true. He's not his only son. Right? But it's his only son as it's relevant to the continuity now of the narrative that's going to be central to our national <coughs> experience. Okay? Okay. So, the question, what I want to do today is I want to look at two examples of two different nations. Okay, where this sense of genealogy from the beginning impacts, because ultimately what we're looking at here, we're not looking at, hmm, I wonder what Yitzhak and Ishmael were, I wonder what their relationship was as brothers. We don't care what their relationship was as brothers, right? Why is, it, why is the, choose, the choice and the rejection important to us? Because ultimately it's going to be the story of Yisrael and the descendants of Yishmael. These stories of individuals are only significant in so much as they influence, or, or they sort of write our national experience, okay? So what I want to look at is another nation that is distinguished from us, okay? We're, gonna, we're not up to them yet, so it's sort of jumping ahead, but everyone, I mean, I'm not, this is no spoiler, right? Yaakov and Esau, we all know who we're good. Yaakov and Esau, who comes from them? Us, obviously. Israel and Edom. Okay? Now, it comes from the brothers, but it's all about the, nation, the, the national story. So let's look inside for a second. Where do we hear, where's the first time we hear about Edom 
in terms as, as a nation, not in the list of genealogies when, we, when we're wrapping up the life of Esau. But where do we first hear of Edom? Go to, huh? Before that, Shmuel. Okay. Uh, I mean, the first time we hear about the hostility, and we're going to talk about this when we get to Yaakov and Esav, is that there's the hostility that's referred to there, um mil um yamats, but we're going to see that's a very enigmatic puzzle because it's not even clear who's meant to be the Rav and who's meant to be the Tzair. We'll get there. Okay? And then we see, of course, Esav. What does Esav do? That sort of seals the deal for us. Sorry, I'm just finishing up in Breshit. What? Okay, right? Go to Chafvav in Breshit. Sorry, I know I said Shmot. I'm backing up for one second. Go to Breshit Chafvav at the very end. Okay, Pasuk Lamed Dalid. Perek Chafvav. Pasuk Lamed Dalid. Vayihi Esav ben Arbaim Shana, Vayikach Isha et Yehudit bat Be'eri hachiti bet posnat patelon hachiti vatiyena morat ruach liyitzchak ulirivka. He marries out. Symbolically, that seals the deal for us, okay? Where's the first time we hear of them as a, as a people or as a nation, sort of as a formidable foe or threat? Edom. Go to Shmot Tetvah. We say this every morning and we forget to pay attention to the words. And Israel just crossed through Yamsuf. They just defeated the, one of the greatest empires in the world. Okay, and look at in their victory song, which is what Shiratayam essentially is. It's not just for us, it's for all the other nations. It's what we call a repost. Pasuk Tetvav. Az Nivhalu. Parak Tetvav, Pasuk Tetvav. Az Nivhalu Elufe Edom. Eleimo Av Yochazemo Ra'ad Namogu Chol Yoshve Kena'a. It's listing all of the people that are geographically going to be close to our story. And it's talking about how terrified they are. But if we have to sing and say, look how scared our enemies are going to be, what is, that in, what is that revealing about where we were at at that point? Well, if you have to sing about how strong you are, it means you're still, right, there's a fear. Right, correct. There's a fear. There's an underlying fear. And so now that Hashem has proven himself, we're going to sing and we're going to chant and we're going to thank God and we're going to talk about how strong we are. But anyone who has to talk about how ha, the Edom, they're going to be so fearful of us, it means that Edom was a threat or we wouldn't care what they think. We're, we're grateful that now that they heard about Kriyat Yamsuf, maybe they'll think twice before attacking us. That's what's between the lines in Shirat Hayam. Okay? When's the next time we hear of them? Go to Bamidbar Chaf, Numbers 20. And listen to this interesting story. Sorry, Parakhaf Pasuk Yudalid, twenty fourteen. Okay, now listen to the language. Which means if he's calling them achicha, it means that they're resting on the assumption that there is some distant memory of shared genealogy, right? And he's going through the whole backstory. And then he begs and he says, Pasuk Yud Zayin, in the next Pasuk, Na'abrana 
לא נעבור בשדה ובחרם ולא נשתה מי באר דרך המלך נלך, לא נטה יומין ושמאל עד אשר נעבור גולחה. Let us pass through, we won't, we're not touching anything. Right? We're not going to defile your country, we're not going to take food that doesn't belong to us. All we need is just the roads cleared for us. ויאמר אליו אדום, לא תעבור בי פן בחרב אצא לקראתך. You step foot into my land and we will come out and kill you. Okay? Or at least, at the very least, go to war against you. Okay? So already we see this sense of Edom as a threatening enemy. Okay? Someone that's not just saying, oh, you know what, we're brothers, come on through. Okay? Go, where else do we see Edom? Okay, so excellent. Even before Malachim and Shoftim, they're listed as one of the enemies. In Malachim as well, right? In Malachim Aleph, we have them. David is actually subjugated in Sefer Shmuel by one of the, uh, one of the kings of Edom, if you remember the very beginning of Shmuel bet. Um, and then we have them, who else, by the way, who marries women from Edom? And it becomes a big problem. Shlomo Amelech. Right? One of the problems with Shlomo is that after he was able to acquire all this wealth, marrying out is wonderful politically. It's terrible for maintaining a pure culture. Okay, and so Shlomo Hamel created lots of problems. Artus. What? Artus, is he part Edom? Idumians, I don't think, are exa- identical to Edom. Okay, it's a different. Correct. Idumians are different. Yeah. Oh, and so I was going to ask that. I thought Herod was a Mesonite. I don't know enough about the, the ethnic groups from the late Second Temple period. Or I do, again, I'm venturing to guess here, but don't. I, I do think so the Idumeans that are, what? No, they're called Idumeans. I don't think they're genetically. It's the same way, by the way, though, that the Plishtim that we're going to be talking about today are not the same Plishtim that Avram is interacting with. A lot of times, also, what happens is that eventually when people begin to take over right, areas or live in the same geographical location, so then they're called, right, they're called the Plishtim. They're not the same Plishtim that Avram interacted with with Avimelech, but it's. For exa- but they become called that. The Plishtim that we're going to talk about today came over from Cyprus, probably, through the Mediterranean. Um, okay, very, but, but by the way, just in terms of what you're asking, and this, we're not talking about this today, but ultimately, the same way we said something can be true on the narrative level, but not, or true historic, not true historically, but it's the same way we call it, right? We say Hitler was Amalek. Right? Genetically, he's probably not, but it doesn't matter because that's essentially, right, it's part and parcel of what we're talking about here. Why do we call, why do we call them Amalek? Why, did we, why was the, the, the link with the Nuremberg trials and the hanging of the, of the convicts on, right, the same time as Purim? It was powerful because it's exactly what we're talking about. It's not about who actually belongs, it's about the way in which the Tanakh enables us to create a schema or a way of making sense of the things around us. So there are certain enemies that behave like Amalek that for no reason just want to destroy us. And then there are other enemies that, for example, we're gonna see with Edom, we have an ambivalent relationship with, right? So let's look, for example, despite everything that happens with Edom, despite the fact that they weren't so nice and so gracious, go to Dvarim Perakbet, Hashem says something really interesting. Okay, and again, I'm reading this pasuk because this is Hashem saying it. This is not a political move. Right? This is not Yoshua making a strategic decision right before they get into the land. This is Hashem telling Am Yisrael what the, how the, the nature of the relationship with them should be defined. And Hashem says as follows, Dvarim Parak Bet, Pasuk Aleph. Hashem says, 
Um, they're, they're reviewing, Moshe's sort of reviewing what happens, how they got through where they did. He's reviewing the, the sort of very, very circuitous route that they had to take. Right, okay, enough sort of, you know, walking around, marching in circles here. Moshe, make sure the people know. Okay, Hashem makes very clear, and it's what we were talking about. Right? Avram was an Avhamon Goyim. The other nations have their parcels of land. We are going to get the lands of Canaan, but we don't just walk through because the other nations are scared because of the miracles God performed and just take whatever the heck we want. And that's a very important distinction that Hashem says there was a promise to Avram's other son, and this is his allotment, and he gets to keep it. Okay? And that he refers to us as achim, right? That there's a sense of a brit achim that cannot be, um, that you can't sort of go back on. Okay, so when it comes to, and again, I brought Edom as an example, but we see very similar with Yishmael, we see similar with Midian, right? Midian, on the one hand, well, we have trouble with them. On the other hand, Yitro is from Midian, so is Tikora, so are, right? The same thing with the Kenim, right? Yael is Eshet Chever HaKeni. They're not necessarily our best friends, but then some good people. There's a lot of ambivalence. When it comes to another nation, though, we're not talking about Amalek today, okay? But when it comes to another nation where there's really no genealogical connection, there's a lot less sympathy, okay? What nation would that be? Ah, so Moab actually, for sure, genealogical connection, and Ruth's being the ancestress of David HaMelech, I think kind of gives them a little, uh, Ah, Mitzrayim, very interesting. Mitzrayim, correct. There is always, right? Mitzrayim is literally the, the antithesis of us culturally. What about the Plishtim? Everyone look on your sheets for a second. Okay. The Plishtim, and I brought here, and this is, if anyone ever questions the impact of the Bible on Western culture, here you have it. The definition of the word Philistine, and we're going to see this is actually not what the Philistines were. But the Philistine in modern parlance means a crass, prosaic, often priggish individual guided by material rather than intellectual or artistic values. Okay? Correct. It's become a word that it's become calm, it's jargon, right? But the but the implication of the word when we use it means this sort of uncouth and, and barbaric, right? Uh, barbaric is also from, right? Or, 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 or. Correct, correct, correct. Now, we're gonna see that this is, now, I'll back up. We may think superficially that this is what the Tanakh is saying, okay? Look very quickly for one second at where the, the Plishtim lived on your map, okay? They took up the entire coastal line. Okay, that's important because and, and sort of give a, giving it away, but as soon as you're living on the coast, that means that you automatically have access to other cultures, you're automatically involved in import and export, and you're also really in many ways sort of the, the first line of defense when it comes to the land itself. And so the people living further inland, while you may not like the Kishtim, right, you also kind of have shared interests. Okay, look down a little bit further. 
you see that what's the, some of the examples, which we're going to be seeing inside in a second, of the beautiful pottery that the Philistines were responsible for. And pottery, of course, it goes without saying, and we're going to see this in a moment, pottery inscriptions is always, you're always able to trace sort of influences from other cultures on the pottery that we have. Okay, I'm going to read you what I wrote now is a list of different things we know about the Philistines, not from the narratives in Tanakh, Okay, but actually from archaeological evidence, right? They try, when, when archaeologists sort of dig up ancient cultures and try to reconstruct it, they're able from the physical cues that are left behind to give us a sense, again, how accurate we can't say, but there's certainly a degree of accuracy in terms of what that, what that um, culture was like. So here I wrote down a few things. This is sort of based on all, everything I was able to find so far, and here we go. The Philistines arrive in Canaan at the beginning of the 12th century BCE, right? And just to contextualize it, we came mid 13th. So relatively close encounter. During its, and certainly by the time the period of, of Yoshua was over, okay? When, once we're already beginning, and we see this in the narratives, right? In the beginning, we're all focused on the Canaanim, but once the story of Yal and Sisra is over, we don't fight Canaanim anymore. Then we're really worried about the Plishtim. They become a formidable enemy. During its first period of settlement, Philistia extended from the Arkon River to the northwest Negev and from the west slopes of Judea to the Mediterranean. They conquered Canaanite cities and settled on their ruins. The Canaanites, by the way, many Canaanite peoples themselves were actually weakened because, anyone remember? Who had control over the lands of Canaan? Egypt, okay? Canaan was a vassal of Egypt until around, coincidentally, the time we start to enter, which is when the Canaanite cities were weakened. So we have the ability to take over certain cities and also the Pilishtim are coming in and taking over other cities. They conquered Canaanite cities and settled on their ruins. The fact that there's evidence that they built stone, that they built houses outside city walls indicates that defense was not a serious problem. Okay, they're not terrified. They are the strong ones in the neighborhood. Four influences that can be discerned in decoration of Philistine pottery, Mycenaean, Cypriot, Egyptian, and Canaanite, right? And again, as I just mentioned, it's always an indicator of cultural diffusion. It means that they had contact with all of these various cultures, and cultural diffusion also, for the most part, means you take the best, sometimes the worst also, but usually the best of what another culture has to offer. They were capable farmers and artisans, as can be seen from the underground silos, flint bags, millstones, oil presses, loom weights, and wine jars. Okay. They were also sophisticated town planners. The earliest strata of their cities that showed that they were divided into different zones, industrial, public, and cultic, and domestic. Okay, these are far, this is far from the Philistine definition that we use today. Right? He says Ashdod, for example, is one of the most extensively excavated of the cities, had houses with courtyards, a citadel, cultic installations, a drainage system, municipal garbage dumped outside city walls. From documents discovered at Ugarit, we know that Ashdod was a famous trade center during the late, uh, the late Bronze Age, known in particular for its production and export of royal purple cloth, royal purple cloth dyed apparently at the nearby har harbor town of Telmore from Murex shells. It was used for, for example, the, the we're going to assume, the clothing of the Kohanim, for much of what the, the um, materials that were used in the, the Beit HaMikdash, and also for what, according to the... Right, at least according to the zoo rabbi. Or no, he's not, it's not the zoo rabbi, it's the other guy that, huh? Correct, the Trilad Institute. Okay, inside city gates show hordes of irons, carpenter tools. That is very important because when were they powerful? Late Bronze Age. 
So if they're already trans, if they're already transitioning to iron, what does that mean? They're ahead of the curve. Technologically, they are advanced, right? They are cutting edge. That's important. Bronze man of scale and stone and metal, etc., etc. Flourishing ceramic industry produced fine tablewares as well as everyday kitchenware, including cooking pots, large deep bowls. By the 7th century BCE, Ekron was the largest producer of olive oil in the ancient Near East. They worshipped Dagon. We're going to meet him in a couple of minutes in Tanakh. And their temples were found to contain holy of holies in the form of a plastered platform, which is what we have, right? You go in, there's a, there's a chater, a kodesh, and then elevated kodesh kodeshim. And the ceiling of one of the largest sanctuaries was supported by cedar columns. The influence of other cultures, including Canaanite, Adrian, and Cypriot. Who else had influence from Cyprus? Shlomo HaMelech. He conscripted who? Hiram Melech Tzor, because he was this unbelievable architect, the best in his day. What? Correct. Well, the palace and the Beit HaMikdash. He sent his... Correct, meaning there's a lot, right? We imagine, oh, they were the uncouth, crazy barbarians, and we, we, we were really, in many ways, culturally, at least in terms of material culture, very, very similar. Accomplishments, they were accomplished architects, builders, artistic pottery makers, textile manufacturers, dye, etc., etc., and you can read anything you want, um, sort of some more slowly and more in detail. Okay, yes? Correct. Ah, I forgot that source. I had it written down. Derek Eretz Plishtim. Why? Kikarovu. Correct. And you're going to want to go back. Meaning the Plishtim were, first of all, it's very, very possible that there were mercenary outposts throughout, right? Even beyond the borders of the land of Israel. But there was something intimidating about them. Technologically, they were cutting edge. Now, if I were to, yeah. But don't we say that there was also an Egyptian garrison blocking? Yes, yes. Not just pushing. Um, an Egyptian garrison, I, I'm blocking. trying to remember now. Kikarobo. I think they might, Kikaro, yeah, I'm trying to remember who said that. I'm trying to remember where I saw that. Um, either way, it's also possible the police team were mercenary soldiers of the Egyptians, right? Which, you know, um, I'm trying to remember where I saw that, that there was an Egyptian garrison right there on the, no, but that's what we're saying. They weren't only there. They were. We don't listen. The big machloket is we don't know where they originated from. Where they did they come from? Cyprus? Did they come from Mycenae? We don't know. Um, but again, they weren't limited to that coastline. It's very possible there were Philistine soldiers spread throughout if they were from part of the Egyptian empire. Yeah. I think that the Philistines were very uh, zealously guarding their advanced technology because they wouldn't allow the Jews to have metalworking and smithies. Oh, okay, oh, okay. Excellent. So, I, okay, so we're gonna get there in two seconds. If, yeah. Listen, the, that's, why, that's why what I'm saying is, right, in an ideal world, 
ideally, we would have come into the land, the Canaanim would have scattered, we would have, it, would have been, it would have been sort of this you know, monolithic culture. It was never like that. Our history was never like that. Our kings were marrying foreign women and worshiping. I mean, it's Shlomo Amela, right? Parakid Aleph who was marrying foreign women and worshiping their gods. Almost every ancient Israelite city that you excavate has idols that people, so, and, and by the way, the Tanakh is not, is not hiding that fact. If you read all of Nevi'im Achronim, that's, that's why they're criticizing the people, because you are not loyal to the covenant that says just Hashem. Right? So I think, I think it's not that the Tanakh is presenting a different reality. I think we like to fantasize about a different reality. You read all of Nevi'im Achronim, we're under no illusion that we were ever, by the way, not even Nevi'im Achronim. Look from Malachim till the end of Malachim Bay. It's all an explanation for why the destruction happened. And the explanation goes all the way back and says, because from the beginning, you weren't doing what you were supposed to be doing, which means culturally you were not acting in this uniquely monotheistic way that you should have been acting. Um, no, eventually we had, certainly by the time of Shlomo, we had hegemony, right? The Plishti threat as a threat, as an enemy that was more powerful than us, was dealt with for the most part by the end of David's period. Once Shlomo was ruling the land, we had hegemony, and then we had it really until the invasion of the Assyrians in the 8th century BCE. Right? We weren't a minority among other majorities the entire history. Certainly in the period of Shoftim we were. Um, once there was a united monarchy, we were not. Listen, that, but that's exactly what the Torah is all about, right? The Torah is saying, don't do the Toivot that the Mitzrim did because that's not for you. Don't do the Toivot that the Kananim did. You are different because you are not them. That's why the language is always a language of distinction because you need to know who you are in contrast to them. That's exactly what we're focusing on. Yeah? What about the chronology? You, you dated this group at 11th century BC, but that was way before. 12th. Well, okay, Tzach is way before that. Right. He goes to Plishtim. No, that's what I said. I don't know that they're yeah, automatic. I, I, if I had to guess, I would say that they're different groups that just ended up in... Yeah, I, I don't think the Plishtim and the Plishtim. Is there any evidence of a separate Plishtim group? Uh, of a separate Plishtim group? An earlier group. I listened I to a, 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 a shiur on this. Yeah. Like they were Plishtim living on the coast. Okay. And later on, another group came from the Mediterranean area. So ah, that they existed already, but then they became sort of a more... Ah, that's also very, very possible. Listen, even later on, right, we know that the Tanakh sometimes uses anachronistic names for... In the time of Ezra Nehemiah, right, they're sitting there and the people come to Ezra in the fourth century BCE, and there are even the, as, yeah, probably around the fourth, and they're saying, oh my gosh, our men are marrying women from Ammon and Moab and Canaan and the Yavusim. The Yavusim had been gone for centuries, right? As were the Canaanim, as were, again, there's, whether or not it's identical to the people there, and it's very possible there were, like you're saying, smaller groups of them that came over earlier, and then the sort of larger bulk came over in the 12th century. It's more a question of how do we perceive the other? And when the people in the days of Ezra were talking to Ezra, they were saying, Ezra, they're intermarrying, and that's problematic because that's what got us into trouble the first time around. So using the name Kanani anachronistically, they weren't actually saying the Yivusim are still alive today. They were using it as sort of a frame of reference to understand the sociological challenge that Ezra was dealing with. Yeah? I'm just wondering whether Kishtim is not like an 
comes from the etymology of Liflosh. Ah, indeed. Oh, that's so interesting. I wonder. Huh. Or do we use the word, or is it reverse? Or do we use the modern, I wonder how old the word Polish is. It's possible that it's the reverse. I mean, do we use the word Liflosh now because it comes from them? I have, that's interesting. Huh? No, I've seen that as an explanation for the... For the word Liflosh or reverse? For the latter that's so interesting. I don't. I have to check if Polish is like an ancient or a modern Hebrew term. That's really fascinating. I'm gonna look that up. Okay. There's a great site. I don't remember what it's called that gives you like the etymology. Yeah, not of every word, but sometimes interesting words. Yeah. It could also be that Tlishtim was an area, not so much a culture of people. That's what we were saying. Because the British considered this place Palestine. Correct. All the Jews that lived here in 46, 47, 48 considered themselves Palestinian. Correct, correct, correct. The name, the question is, is it the name, is a name based on the geographical area or is it based on the ethnic? Listen, Egyptians, the Egyptians yes. are not yes. ancient yes. Egyptians yes. now. What? Adrian, there was an exhibit a couple years ago the Israel Museum. When he renamed it. He coined, correct, after the, after Barcosa's revolt. To, to get rid of the Jewish uh, It was when label. he, it was, it was our bad. We messed he, up and we tried to revolt again. He, he viewed the word Palestina, Palestine, as being insulting to the Jews. Ah, interesting. Because yeah. Palestina is from Palestine. That's interesting. Huh. That's really, really interesting. Um, okay. If we were looking at what we know about the plishtim, right, and then I asked, right, imagine if I never handed out the sheet and I said to you, describe the plishtim, your description would probably be more along the lines of the dictionary's description, right, because of the way the Tanakh describes them. What I want to do today is show you how that's in fact not true, how we actually know all of this is true from the narratives the Tanakh chooses to tell us about the plishtim. Okay, what do I mean by that? Give me, we're going to start from the beginning, and then we're going to focus on three of the major references, really, to the plishtim. Okay, the first time we see the plishtim for, really, wholesale, is in the story we have, for example, David HaMelech joins the war, actually, joins the side of the plishtim, right? If you remember, or actually, well, all right, I'm backing up, we'll get back to Shmuel in a second. To the point that, what? Well, he flees to Gat. He was a local king of Gat. And the night before the major war, the turning point where Shaul dies with his sons, David was about to go out and lead a contingent of soldiers against Israel until the Philistines were like, hey, you know what? Maybe your loyalties might be in question. Why don't you sit this one out? We'll go fight. Had they not done that, who knows what would have been, right? Who knows what David would have chosen in that moment? And so already as much as they are the other, there's also something to be said about our own fleeing to them and ruling over them. We know they were a formidable enemy. Why? And what are they the impetus for in the Shmuel Aleph Perakud Chet? Huh? Ah, oh, we're going to get there in a second. That's the major narrative about them. Shmuel Aleph Perakud Chet, Pasuk Chapei, the very infamous Pasuk. Vayomer. Which Pasuk? Shmuel Aleph Perakud Chet, Pasuk Chapei. I jumped, I skipped the source. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I skipped this, I skipped one. I apologize. We're going back to Parachet for a second. Yeah, of Shmuel Aleph. Sorry. Chapter 8, verse 20. What do B'nai Israel say? They say, they say, sorry, go back a pasuk to 19. 
They want a king. At that point, is against the plishtim. It's not against really anyone else. And we know that in the next parak, even though Shmuel thinks it's a bad idea, God says, I'm acquiescing and why. That's a whole separate discussion. But in the next parak, in Pasuk Tezayin, Hashem says explicitly to, to Shmuel, He says, Ka'et machar Pasuk Tezayin. The sole goal of appointing Shaul king was to get rid of the plishti threat so that Am Yisrael can, can live in peace. Okay? By the way, separate, really interesting thought is who's the first person that's meant to, to start the battle against the plishtim? Right, Shimshon. Right when his mother, when Aisha Manoch gets the vision, you're going to be pregnant, and then he says she's, he's going to be nar, uh, nazir yemin anar min abatan, and then he says who yachel shia et Yisrael miyad and he's going to begin the process, and then it'll ultimately finish. So there's a bookend there between Shimshon and David Hamelach. Okay, there there's an allure to them. David runs to them. There's a fascination with them, but also a fear. But how do we know they are more than any other nation referred to as the other? There's a term we 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 sort of use exclusively. They're the Arelim, right? And if we jump, for example, if we look in Parakil Chet in Shmuel, what is the challenge that Shaul gives David, whoever, or not specific to David, whoever can go out to war and bring back Mea or Lot Plishim, and of course he brings back more, but there's something very symbolic about bringing back the foreskin of the unforced, right, of the uncircumcised other to show, right, everything that it symbolizes. Okay, the three most, if, we had, if I had to ask you, what are the three most um, extensive narratives involving Plishtim? The first one we just mentioned. Okay, Goliath, we're going to get to start. Huh? We're skipping the, those Plishtim. We're talking about the, huh? Shimshon. Okay, the first one is Shimshon. We're going to get to him. He's later on. Okay, go to Shoftim Yud Gimel. Very quickly for one second. Now, Shoftim, if you had to tell me, I did a Yomiyon here on Shimshon, right? Didn't we talk about Shimshon? I think I did. Okay, Shimshon in a nutshell is what for, for Israel? We are less powerful, right? And so Hashem gives us this what? He's more than strong. He's a superhero, okay? He is right out of the comic books. He has this superhuman strength. He's almost, someone said Superman, but it's not. It's most similar really to the Incredible Hulk, right? He's normal, he's functioning, and then all of a sudden, he just rips it out and goes crazy, right? Vatipa'im, right? Hashem's ruach, vatipa'im rucho. Hashem's ruach would sometimes come upon him, and he was able to take animals and tie them by their tails and throw them into fields, I mean, and lift city gates up on his back and walk out with them. He was this figure that was the superhero. Someone made a very interesting, I don't know enough about the Golem stories, but someone made a very interesting connection recently that I saw between the need for the Jews living in, you know, in um, Prague and sort of needing that superhero or half human, half something to the, to the Shimshon stories, right? This sort of idea that, that when, when we just cannot fight back, the fantasy that there would be this superhero that can come and fight our battles for us. It was a fascinating, fascinating, uh, I thought, connection. Okay, the whole point is that he is going to defeat the Plishtim. Okay? But Shimshon is a tragic hero. Why? 
Why is he a tragic hero? Why does he fail? Foreign women. Okay? Shimshon ultimately fails because of the allure of foreign women. And we see it from the beginning. If you go in the story, Parakid Gimel, Pasuk Hay. She's told she's going to have a child, and it finally happens. And Pasuk Hay, it says, uh, sorry, Pasuk, I apologize, the beginning of Parakid Dalit. Uh, chapter 14, right? The end of 13 is, So we have all this hope, right? This is going to be amazing. And not just that, Hashem's spirit would sort of inspire him. This is it. We're going to be safe. Except, which is, of course, the directional cues are always significant. And that's when everything starts to go downhill. He doesn't even marry this one, right? If you remember, the father gives her away to another man. But it's a series of encounters with foreign women culminating in the story of Delilah. And what does Delilah symbolize? And what does the story of Shimshon really symbolize the fear of? She'll take away your strength. She'll, she'll, she'll deplete our strength. That's what, that what makes us special. That what makes us different. That what God promised us. What? Taking away the separateness. The separateness, the distinction, that what makes us unique. Right? The Nizirut, he wasn't actually a Nazir. He was drinking beer at the parties. He was, and he was among dead bodies. He didn't. Nazir is not that he was keeping all the halachot of Nizirut as we learn them in, ta, in the Torah. It's that he was set aside. He looked different. His hair was all over the place. He was distinct. Once she cut his hair, that's it. And so as much as we say, no, we don't know this stuff about the plishtim, you're only scared of foreign women if there is an allure. Foreign women represent what is most attractive about the foreign culture. And so if we are terrified about the foreign, the plishti women seducing our men and taking them away from us and taking them away from that which makes us unique, so then it's really revealing that which the sheet is telling us, right? That there was an allure about their culture. There was something attractive about it. There was something that we were drawn to. So okay. Story of, of what? Marrying out. Exog, marrying out is the one of the biggest obsessions. Correct. It, not just in Tanakh, by the way, in every culture. Yes. Why is intermarriage? Correct. Correct. One hundred percent. In the days of Ezra and Akhemia, it was the issue, right? And then we redefine what marrying out means. We redefine matrilineal descent. We redefine the notion of conversion, all as a means of maintaining. Right, this sense of, of a uniquely Jewish. Okay, yeah. Do they ever? Does the Torah ever sort of talk about Jewish women being foreign men? Or different, different. Um, because it was a patri- it's a patriarchal world, right? So for the most part, you're not. Um, actually, the reverse logic would be true. No, in a different way. The, the father, a woman, is not just going to be like sort of you know seduced into another, they didn't have that kind of freedom, right? And we see it even reflected in the halachot. If a girl is raped in the field, but no one heard her cries, then, the, then really what the halachot is asking, what was she doing alone in the field? Where were her brothers? Where were her father? Why was she not, right? It's the Dina story, right? Why was she not, but Tate say Dina, well, we're going to get to it. Huh? Why was she not chaperoned? Why was she not being chaperoned? It's a reflection not on her, it's a reflection on the failure of the patriarchal system to protect her and keep her, and protect, sort of protect her chastity. That's what it's really about. Okay. The second elongated narrative with the plishtim comes in Shmuel Aleph Perak Dalet. Now, we're not going to read through the entire thing because it's very, very long. 
but I just want to read a few things and you're going to tell me again. We're not looking at the superficial narrative. What you are doing is you're taking a step back and saying, if the Tanakh is recording this story and making such a big deal about it, back up, what were the concerns and the needs and the fears and the anxieties and of the audience that the Tanakh had to write this? Right? What did Israel need to hear at this point in history? So Perak Dalid, it begins as follows. Uh, so very similar to the David Goliath story, which we're going to see in a second. There's this idea that they're camped out and they're camped out and it's building up to the climax. Israel are being, they're being completely beaten. Now, we know, right, because we are students of Tanakh, if we're losing in battle, why are we losing? There's only one reason in Tanakh that's given. Because we have breached the covenant. The covenant is Hashem will protect us, right? As long as we are, if we're immoral or if we are not keeping the covenant, that's the only time we lie. There's a misunderstanding here, though, and that's part of what's right, wrong with the culture at this point in Israel. Because what do they say? What do we need? Why? What was the Aron? Who sat on the Aron? Hashem was, one of the epithets of God is Hashem Yoshev Kruvim. Right? Hashem was believed. Again, we are modern people. We imagine a distant, uh, invisible God. Hashem in the ancient world was believed to be imminent. All gods were believed to be imminent. They wanted to bring God out with them to battle. And it says, um, Which is already sort of a hint that this is not going to go well because Chafmi and Pinchas were the two most right, corrupt priests that we know of until maybe the second temple period. There's this buzz, there's this excitement. Now again, we're not focusing on this piece, but this is a very clear polemic against what idea. Hashem is making very clear that we have a mistaken sense of what? Huh? Well, that also, that's for sure, although that happens, although I don't know that that's a proof against this, because Hashem is going to do some interesting things with the Aaron. The misconception that cultic objects is what gives us power, right? That's where we differ. That's why we're an aniconic religion, because it's not the cultic objects, and what, it's the same what the Nevi'im say later on, right? I don't need your korbanot. I am not a god that needs, you don't, it's not about magic, it's about the covenant. All of these cultic objects are representations for you. No power lies in them, okay? But we're not focusing on that now, we're focusing on the plishtim. Etc. Etc. And so the Tanakh, now, whether or not the plishtim were actually saying that, it doesn't matter. The Tanakh is presenting the Oyev as being fearful of us, which is reminiscent of Kriyat Yamsuf, Az Yashir, which is very important. And Come on, gather your strength, right? Chazak, the equivalent. Pasuk Yud, 
Vayilachamut lishim vayinagefis Yisrael vayanusu ishlo o halav vatihi hamakagdo lameod. The ark is not magic. Okay? Vayipon Yisrael shlo shim elefragli. Another 30, now whether it's 30,000 or 30 units of soldiers is debatable, but a significant number of losses. Vayaron ha'elokim nilkach ushnei b'nei eli metu chafni upinchas. So two tragedies occur. The Aaron is taken, and the two sons of Shmuel are killed. And then it goes, it says, Right, He has the outer signs of mourning, which was whether it was ritualistic or that was really how he was feeling. Eli is sitting there, and Eli hears the cry of everyone, and he realized something bad happened, and he's already 98 years old, and the man comes and he says, I've just come from battle, and he tells him what happened, and if you jump down, Okay, so he's, he's, it's interesting what he's doing is he's almost, if you think about it, building up to that which might be most hard for Eli to hear. Right? He's saying, we lost the war. There was a lot of human life lost. And your two children died. And again, the, the way he died is very strange. Um, I actually have a friend in New York who was doing a dissertation on all the weird deaths in Tanakh and what that symbolizes. This is one of them. What? Um, on the strange ways that people die in Tanakh. Avshalom gets tugged, you know, gathered up by in the branches and he falls back. And it, it, there's just strange depictions, what's that symbolic of? The point is, what's the mo what causes him to fall back? Yeah, I'm wrong. Okay. The plishtim go jump down now to to Why are they bringing it to their temple of Dagon? Because it's the victory, right? Look, now it's essentially very, very symbolic. We are taking these stolen, defeated gods. By the way, any time ancient other uh, peoples would come in and invade or sack a temple, what would they always carry out very symbolically? The gods of the temple. Okay, because it's saying, we defeated you. Our god is more powerful than yours. Okay? So they put it right next to Dagon. They wake up the next morning, and what happened? Oh, coincidentally, Dagon is prostrating himself to the Aron. So they think this is weird, so they pick him up and they stand it back up. The next morning they wake up, he's prostrating again. This time his head is chopped off and his hands are chopped off, which is also symbolic of being a captive. Right? That's why Avimelech, if you remember the beginning of Shoktim, had prisoners under his table that had to gather the scraps of food, but they had no behonokyadaim or ablaim. It terrified them. And the story doesn't stop here. We're going to sort of summarize the rest of it. It doesn't stop here. It gets worse and worse because then people are stricken and they have horrible um, physical ailments and everything until finally they decide what? They decide to give it back and look at what they say. Okay? Um, go to Pasuk 
ויכבד. ותכבד יד השם על האשדודים, וישימם, ויחותם בתחורים את אשדוד ואת גבוליה, ויראו אנשי אשדוד כי כן ואמרו לא ישב ארון אלוקי ישראל עמנו, כי קשתה ידו עלינו ועל דגון אלוהינו. וישלחו ויעשו את כל סרני פלישתים, and they decide to send it back. And essentially what they really say is, they don't want to suffer the same fate as what? They go further back in history. They don't want to suffer the same fate as Mitzrayim. They say, remember when the Mitzrayim were stubborn and they didn't take the cues, and look what happened to them? We don't want to get to that point. And so they send the Aron back. Now what happens when the Aron get back is a whole separate discussion. The people that actually encounter it die in Beit Shemesh, which is similar to the story, if you remember, of Uzzah, Peretz Uzzah. Okay, and that's a separate discussion which we might get to when we talk about the, uh, the Beit HaMikdash. Okay, what is this essentially? Now go back. It's a great story. It's entertaining. We love it. But what is it revealing about Israel that the Tanakh has to come and tell this unbelievable and recount and create space in the Prakim for this story. Why did it resonate? Why was it told and retold and written down? Stress and magic is not, is not the solution. Okay, so that's for sure. That's one element. But now think in terms of our relationship with the Plishtim. Okay, so it's very possible, right? Maybe we brought the Aron out because, but even more basic. That they can choose like when to bring God and like how to ask God for what they want, but like it's not like that's not part of like how we believe. Okay, like, certainly that's God that's huge. And if I have to say the most important component of the story for us, it's for sure that everything that you're saying in terms of the objects not being powerful in their own right, it's it's our relationship with God. But think now, what is it saying about? Our relationship with the Plishtim. Saying that even though the Plishtim are stronger than us and defeated us, that God is stronger than the Plishtim. Correct. It's almost it's an extension of what you're saying. Right? We may have lost the war, and by the way, this is a very big issue in Israel. We may have lost the war because God is punishing us. We didn't lose the war because our God was defeated. Because Nana, our God is still more powerful than your God. And it sounds Right? It sort of sounds petulant, but that's what so many narratives in Tanakh are about. When Yirmiyahu Navi says, the Babel is going to come in and destroy the Beit HaMikdash and exile you because that's what Hashem wants, that's Yirmiyahu preempting the misconceived notion that Hashem was defeated by Marduk. Okay? So it's something we always, because in ancient times, we have to get back into the minds of ancient times, Right? We're, you're only defeated if your god was defeated by the other god. We were defeated on the battlefield. Hashem was not defeated. Okay? Yeah? If the Christian knew about the story of Mitzrayim, and, and like, they were like, okay, if their god is very wrathful to people who start off with them, why would, if they actually believed that, then why would they just start off? So, again, how much they actually said those words or how much that was sort of poetic license by the Nivian that were writing these stories. It's, it's you know, there's a lot of, um, what, what a riposte is basically, right, similar to Shiratayam, similar to what Devorah sings after she kills Sisra. A riposte is basically a song of our, right, how we, how we tell the story, right, is really more revealing of, of which parts of the story we need to focus on more than what the Plishtim necessarily said. 
Right? Did the, were the Plishtim really terrified of Israel, and did they really have a memory of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim? Perhaps, or perhaps not. It's, it's what we need to understand about how Hashem's behavior in Mitzrayim, what Hashem proved in Mitzrayim, is repeated throughout history. It wasn't a one-time event. It's constantly happening. Right? That's, yeah? What I see in the narrative is that this helmet that Israel allowed the Plishtim to humiliate them, and where is the kind of oath on the part of so I would I would almost say they didn't ha we did not have the ability to defeat them. Hashem shamed them, right? It's almost as if when it comes to when it comes to honor and shame, Hashem will protect the honor, His honor, right? And we're just in a, a reflection of God, right? There's nothing we could do. We were defeated. We lost scores of troops. What were we supposed to do to undo the shame? Go back out to war and lose more people? Just specifically this incident, but throughout the narrative, all our encounters with them is that at some point they are humiliating us. That's it. They're humiliating us? I'm trying to think. I don't know more. Yeah, so Goliath is the greatest example. The whole Shimshon, you know. But I don't know that they're humiliating us more than other enemies. I'm not sure. Um, in what way? Meaning. But that's what the ancient world was, right? That when Hashem was proving that the that the magicians in Mitzrayim can't do the miracles that He can do, what He's proving is Ki kamoni He's not saying my people are the best in the world. He's saying I am the most powerful God. I chose them, the Nibachori Israel. It was always back in the day a, a battle between the gods, right? That's what it came down to. Because again, we're 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 so modern in the way we conceive of God and religion. We're, we're much more removed from that sort of all-encompassing theology. But, but that's why today, since the establishment of the state of Israel, the Christians have had a theological trauma. And that so you see it a lot with the Protestant groups. I mean, you see, living in Chilo, and I see um, it Yeah, you could Chilo, argue that that's... It is a, it's something that... Um, Perhaps, or they're getting lots of money to wait for the final coming. Well, we're taking money from him, but I was going to say. Story. Um, I don't know. That I don't know enough about to even yeah, speak of. There's also the story of Yonatan and the one, it is one uh, man. And just the two of them climb up and they defeat all the fish too because God is with them. Ah, that's right. That's right. That's right. A hundred percent. I chose the three most sort of, you know, I would say the most extensive narratives involving Christian. But again, what even what we keep getting the sense of is that the stories we're telling are arguing against. They're so cool. They're so powerful. They're so technologically advanced. Their God seems so amazing. The Tanakh keeps saying over and over, no, 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 no. Look how look how awesome we are. Right? That's that's essentially yeah, what it was. The story of Yonatan going out to war with that one other person, they went up by themselves and fought the battle and were able to defeat the police team. It's a much smaller, smaller episode, but it's also very, very true. Okay, very quickly, let's go. Everyone knows the story of David and Goliath, and we have exactly three minutes. So Shmuel, Aleph, Parakut, Zion. I just want to focus on... Now you tell me, right, if the first story, the, the focus is foreign women and the allure of culture, and the second one is the theology. Right? How do we know that our God is in fact more powerful? Well, you know, because their God woke up and was, or excuse me, because we woke up in the morning and their God was prostrating to their God, okay, or to our God. Tell me what the David Goliath's 
story more than anything, and again, there's a million layers to the story, right, in terms of David's leadership, in terms of Shaul's waning and everything else, but I'm going to read two psukim in particular that I want to focus on and tell me what you think is being highlighted or one of the things being highlighted here. Parakidzai in chapter 17, Pasuk Lamedachet. Okay, David is out at war. We all know there's a major, major buildup. And, and Goliath is sort of, you know, this, this giant soldier of epic proportions. When they add up, I think he was over eight feet tall, which in those days is probably nowadays would be 10 feet tall, right? Because the average height has only increased. Crazy giant, there's no way to defeat him. And of course, David hears him. He decides he's going to go out and fight him on this one on one combat. Parakid Zion, chapter 17, Pasuk Lamedachet. 38. Uh, so he puts the armor onto David. He puts it on, he's putting it. He, he couldn't even walk. Right? Meaning he wasn't used to walking in armor, and it was probably, if we have to imagine, physically too heavy for him to walk in. He just didn't have the muscle strength. Vayomer David el Shaul, lo uchal lalechet ba'ela kiloni siti. Vayisirim David me'alav, vayikach maklo biyado, vayivchar lo chamisha chalukei abanim min ha'nachal. Vayasem otam yichli haroim, right, and there's something very symbolic, of course, about him being a shepherd. He takes the five smooth stones, he puts them in a little pouch with his little shepherd stick, and he goes out literally in nothing but what we would today call shorts and a t-shirt. Asher lo vayalchut v'chalo biyado, vayigash et ha'plishti. He goes out to encounter the plishti. And if we jump to Pasuk Memhe 45, they're out there and listen to this is perhaps the most astounding statement. By Yomer David, El HaPlishti, the plishti is sort of, you know, trash talking him. I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds of the sky. And David responds, By Yomer David, El HaPlishti, Atabailai Becherev Uvachanit Uvechidon. You're coming to me with all of your technologically advanced weapon systems. Which, by the way, that is the shame element, right? And David goes out and says, And I am coming in the name of God. And not coincidentally, the one foreshadowed inch on the entire body of, of Goliath that was not covered, the stone goes right into there. He knocks him down, and then David comes and, and cuts his head off. So if you had to tell me, the elements here, the story of David and Goliath, is addressing about the Plishtim, it's... It's the God strength versus the... I told you what my, my thing, Loni City, I can't make a miracle with this stuff on me. And that's exactly what, what happens with David. This Correct. Is, the, uh, they're terrified of the technological advancement. Someone mentioned it before, I don't remember who, that the Plishtim kept the secrets of how to make iron warfare. The Jews, the Israelites had no idea how to do it. Right? So they were technologically superior, but the story of David and Goliath is an answer to that fear and that anxiety. They might be technologically superior, but that's irrelevant when you are going out to fight for Shem Hashem. Okay? And so again, this is, I, I use Plishtim, and it's sort of a tangent because they're not in the Bereshit stories. We're going to get back into Bereshit next class, but it's very, very important, I think, to understand how sort of the, the ideology is shaped by the narratives that are chosen. And the ideology about the Plishtim is not the same as the ideology about Edom, and it's not the same as the ideology of Amalek. It's not us against all of them. It's each nation has its own unique character, and how we interact with them becomes symbolic for how to interact with that type of enemy.
for all eternity. That's really what the Tanakh is doing. It's laying the groundwork. Hundred percent. hundred. Right. So I mean, it's, I'm dividing them into three major, but it's all wrapped up in one. Yes, absolutely. All right. Have a great time. Uh, next class. I don't know yet who is filling in, but I'm having a sub next week. They're gonna send an email out. Um, I'm not gonna be here next week. They will have someone.